Well, hey, friends. It's 10.30. Let's go ahead and get started. Allow me to pray for us as we look into God's Word. Father, we give you great thanks um, for the work that you have before us. And we thank you that the work of studying your Word is just so rewarding and life-giving. So I pray that these concepts would, uh, because they come from you, they're penned by your Spirit, and they're resonating with your Holy Spirit within us, would go far more than just information, and you would be causing us to be vessels of your, uh, of your purposes in this earth, on this earth, and you do your work through us by using this time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, hey, welcome. I think probably fewer numbers because of the rock and roll marathon. That's my thought, at least. Um, so let's do this. As we often start, I love to just get us to share names. So name and um, uh, name and the name of your grandmother. So I'm going to start. Jeff, and don't get him confused either. That's my name, Jeff. Zuma. Zuma is my grandmother's name. Yeah. And then I'm going to start right here and we'll kind of snake this way toward the back. Um, hey, the Bible, as we're teaching it, is one big story. It has to do with God redeeming his people and it's told through events in history. This is what we believe to be real history. We're going to actually see an archaeological record of one of the kings of Assyria um, trying to sack uh, King Hezekiah when he's at Jerusalem today. Archaeology defends this stuff, but it's not just interesting historical facts. The purpose of creation is going to be centered on the work of Jesus Christ. So all of this is, you could imagine like the Old Testament timeline sloping down to this period, Messiah, when Jesus comes. And then everything breaks open and God is going to do a work through his spirit and his people. And that's us, friends. We're a continuation of this story. So, speaking of that story, let's do our little review. Casket is our Old Testament mnemonic. So let's start with C stands for? A stands for? S stands for? K stands for? E stands for? And T stands for? So last week in my sermon, when I said, which commandment is thou shalt not commit adultery? How many of you, did you know that and you just didn't speak up? Okay. I have faith in you that you know that. Okay, but you won't forget it now, I'm sure. Um, good, let's go through symbols now. So think, get a visual picture of your symbols. Okay, the symbol for creation is? The symbol for Abraham is? Good, the symbol for Sinai is? Good. Symbol for kings is? Blue crown. The symbol for exile is? Yep, bird of prey. Good. And the symbol for T is? The temple. Very good. Let's do some dates because it's kind of helpful sometimes. Uh, period of Abraham, our first date, 2100 shows the... Who is... What happens at 2100 B.C.? Abraham is called. Calls Abraham out of Ur. That's great. And then what happens in 1450? For the period of Sinai? 
Great, they're called out of Egypt. I think technically it's 1446. They're able to like really pinpoint that event. What happens in 1050? Great, Saul is first king. Good, and then some dates that are gonna help us orient ourselves with the Northern period and the Southern period. What happens in 930 BC? Yeah, the split of, of Northern Kingdom and Southern Kingdom. And then our next important date is going to be 722, which is right here. Great. The Northern Kingdom is sacked. The capital of the Northern Kingdom was Samaria. Samaria. Great. And that's sacked by another kingdom called the Assyrians. So we've got our ABCs. Now, our other date that we want to remember here is 586 BC, which is... Great, the southern kingdom is sacked. What's the capital of Judah? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. That's going to be sacked not by Assyria, but by Babylon. Babylon. Very good, or Babylonia. Um, Good, and there are a few dates that we're actually going to see next week as we're polishing off the southern kingdom. There's actually three deportations that happen to God's people. Deportation is the right word. Babylon is going to come in, general and king, Nebuchadnezzar, is actually going to take people from Jerusalem out of the city because the city gets destroyed. The walls fall down. The temple is burned. Remember that the temple is made mainly of wood. And so then these people come with King Nebuchadnezzar back to Babylon. And the very first deportation is going to include the young, strong youth. And they're going to educate these Jewish youth within Babylon to sort of, I don't know, they, to, to, be, to become warriors, to become everything, to become established men of Babylon. One of those young youth is Daniel, our prophet Daniel. And so he's going to be deported in 605. And then in 597, the king is actually taken out of Jerusalem. His name's Jehoiachin. And then a vassal king, his uncle, is going to be set up. His name is changed to Zedekiah. By the way, as you read Chronicles or Kings, you're going to notice a lot of the kings have two names. It's because there's a regent name. When you become a king, often your name is changed. It's like when you become Pope. For those of you that have experience in becoming Pope, you know how that works. Um, And then in 586, that's the final deportation from Jerusalem. Does anybody stay in Jerusalem in the surrounding region? The poor. The poor do. Those people who are, or the poor, the weak, yeah, they're going to die. Let's, let's just leave them there. Okay? So, 586, very good. And then what happens in 539 at the end of the exile? Way to go. Cyrus. And is Cyrus a Assyrian or Babylonian king? No, he belongs to Persia. Sometimes the Medo-Persians because, I don't know. Uh, So Cyrus, we've got our ABCs, Assyria, Babylonia, and Cyrus, which is Persia. And then the end of the temple period is 430. What is the book written in 430 that we have in the Old Testament? Malachi, which is the last of the Old Testament prophets. Let's take a look at our outline. Last week, we got into the northern kingdom. Note that we're spending four weeks on the kingdom. By the way... Just last night, um, we, we kind of tweaked the timeline a little bit. There's going to be a week 11 
where we just kind of do some big review and a sneak peek at this. So next week is the last Sunday of the month. It's October 31st. You can wear your costume to church. I always do. Uh, I will, no, I will not bring candy. There's no way I'm paying any money for any candy to come into my house. That's just, it's so much candy. This time of year, candy comes in every pocket that belongs to my girls. Like it just comes into my house. It's like they're trafficking it. They do. Yeah, Ramona's in kindergarten and, and, and um, Glory's in preschool here. They have no lack of candy. But because it's the last Sunday of the month, we won't have class. Instead, we'll have Courtyard Fellowship, exactly. But then the next week is the official launch of the Capitol campaign. So after worship, we're going to gather as a congregation, watch a video of the first stage of the master plan, um, answer questions about what we're endeavoring on as a congregation. So that means two weeks in a row, we won't have casket empty class. So... Paul, if you want to host a study, a study session at your house, everybody can come over and Paul will tutor you. Um, but after that, November 14th, am I doing my math right? Yeah. Yeah, that's... Okay. Right. November 14th, we will have class. Thank you. So November 14th is going to be our week eight. And then November 21st, we'll have week nine. And then November 28th is the last Sunday of the month, so we'll have fellowship. And then we come back for December 5th, we'll have week 10, and then we'll do one more week on December 12th, week 11. And then we'll do just a one-stop shop Advent class that I think Jerry's going to teach in December. Okay? Any questions about that? Great. Uh, A little review. From last week, we're going back to the Northern Kingdom. Who are our three northern prophets and what are their three eyes Um, i'm going to have you do this with your neighbor actually and then what were the events leading up to the destruction of israel any key people or actions or empires or dates that you can remember is great who was israel's worst king and which prophet challenged him work with the two or three people around you i'll give you five minutes ready set go pencils down Pencils down. All right, let's do it together. Our three, this group right here, our three northern prophets. You know, actually, this is great, and I should have clarified. the. Prof- oh, maybe I did. The prophetical books, Elijah and Elisha are our two main northern prophets, right? But they don't write any books. So I'm curious, who are our three prophets? prophetical books of the northern kingdom hosea amos and jonah great and then the three eyes that help us remember what their books were about pauline can you help us andrew you got it yeah that's really 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 idolatry we're talking about um for hosea infidelity but marriage is used as a metaphor for idolatry. So infidelity or idolatry. That's great. I told and, Andrew, it's insight. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? That one's, coming, that one's coming up, Paul. So don't forget that one. That's actually going to be for... Yeah, that one's for today for Isaiah. 
um, more eyes than you can deal with. Amos, we've got our scales. And so what was that one, Andrew? Uh, Injustice, great. And then for Jonah, in need of compassion. Okay, great. What were the events leading up to the destruction of Israel? Who wants to weigh in on that a little bit? um, Yes and no. Jezebel is about 100 years before the fall. But what's the key problem that Jezebel introduces that they follow in? What's the key problem with Israel? It's idolatry. It's worship of Baal. It's worship of other gods. That... Yeah, Baal's, Baal's a false god. Yeah. Um, this, is, this is just the issue. What do you remember that Jeroboam, the very first king, does? He sets something up. Great. Golden calves. These are your gods who brought you out of Israel, or out of Egypt. And then these two calves remain for, for 200 years. Great. And then we already said 722. That's when it gets sacked. Um, good. And then one more thing. What does Assyria, this is going to be important later. What does Assyria do to Samaria when they take control of the city? What do they do with their people? They take some and move them up for us their nation and take random people from their nation and put them there. Fantastic. And as p- ancient people move around, what moves with them? They're gods. So what happens to the religion of the Jews? It gets confused. That's called syncretism, which is why you're going to have the Samaritans. The Samaritans have their own Old Testament, the Samaritan Pentateuch. You can read it, and it's wacky and wonky. Okay, we're going to actually see... Um, never mind. Yeah, so that's, that's what's going on there. And who was Israel's worst king? Do you remember? Ahab. Yeah, Ahab. Did the Moby Dick thing help you? Good. And then which prophet challenged him? Elijah. Elijah. And who was Elijah's successor? Elisha. Elisha. You guys are great. Okay, quick overview of our time period. We're going to be looking at the southern kingdom. The dates are the kingdom split, 930 to the destruction of Jerusalem in 586. And looking at our table of contents. First and Second Samuel, the only reason that they're two books is because these were heavy scrolls to walk around with, so they divided them. It's the only reason why they're two books, okay? It's one big story. So the outline actually encapsulates everything. All of Samuel's content is in First Chronicles. Samuel concerns itself with Saul, David, and that's basically it. You don't really get into Solomon. Kings, all of the kings, which used to be one, I mean, it was divided into two scrolls, but it's just one story. All of kings is included in Second Chronicles. Remember that Chronicles is about the period of the kings, but it's written during the period of the exile. So everything they're interpreting about where did we go wrong, they've already seen the destruction of, of, of the Temple of Jerusalem. Okay? When you read, that's Chronicles. When you read Kings, they don't know that Jerusalem's going to fall. They don't know that that's going to happen. So the messages of idolatry are there, but they're not as polemical. They're not as strong. Okay? So if you really want to get some insight on theology of the period of the Kings, read Chronicles. And um, here's our books for this period. Isaiah, Jeremiah are going to be our 
and I guess Ezekiel and Daniel, these are our major prophets for this kingdom. Ezekiel and Daniel, look, they're both carried off into exile, which means they bridge the king period with the exile period. So we're actually going to peer more into Ezekiel and Daniel once we get into exile. Um, Joel, you'll see the prophet Joel is up here uh, with a locust. The reason for this is maybe there was an actual literal plague of locusts, but it's a highly symbolic book. And what Joel sees is that an army will invade Jerusalem like a plague of locusts coming in and invades our fields and economy. Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. For the most part, the minor prophets, which is Hosea through Malachi, that's 12 prophets, for the most part, they are chronological, for the most part, uh, with a few exceptions. Obadiah, we're hardly even going to talk about because it has to do with Edom, the kingdom of Edom. They were sort of heckling the Jews when destruction comes to Jerusalem. Edom was like, yeah, Jerusalem, you should have seen that coming. And Obadiah prophesies against Edom and says, your sins are just as bad as ours. And so what that shows us is prophets like Nahum, who prophesies against Nineveh, and Obadiah, which prophesies against Edom, God cares about his honor being broken or breached by the nations as well as by the Jews. So God's goal is always for the heart of all of the nations. Sneak peek at the Southern Prophets. Micah, there's going to be more alliteration than you know what to do with here. Micah is going to be miscarriage of justice. You'll see that it's the same symbol as for Amos. Injustice, miscarriage of justice. Isaiah. Insight. There it is. Insight lacking. We're going to talk about Isaiah today. Um, you are blind and deaf because you worship idols that have ears, but they're deaf. They have eyes, but they can't see. And you've become like the idols you worship. That's actually how idols work. Zephaniah, judgment is nigh. Judgment is coming. So Zephaniah is toward the end of our period, and he's talking judgment is coming. A lot of day of the Lord language in there. Jeremiah, Jerusalem will fall. So Jeremiah is going to kind of live to see, he lives to see the temple destroyed. Gary. So nigh means? Near. near. Yes, near. Exactly. Yeah, judgment is near. Judgment is nigh, Zephaniah. Great question. Joel. Yes. Um, yes, Jeremiah chapter 31 talks about, um, so Jeremiah sees God's people carried off into Babylon. And then Jeremiah's message to them is, seek the welfare of the city where God has put you. God has taken his people and put them in Babylon. But the message is, seek the welfare of the city. And in the city's welfare, you'll find welfare, welfare as well. And that's kind of the point. There's a big quoted verse in, is that the right chapter? Jeremiah? No, it's not 31. Jeremiah 30, 20, gosh, why am I forgetting this? Jeremiah 29, thank you. Um, what's Jeremiah 21, 9, 11 again? declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. And it's in the context of that, he says, but I'm going to prosper you 
as you work toward the prosperity of the city that I've given you. It's not a selfish promise. You're working for the blessing of those around you. Yeah. And to yeah. carry on your life. Yeah. Which was yeah, right. And sure enough, 70 years later, they're going to be able to come back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple within a generation. Joel has to do with jumping things, invade Jerusalem. An army is going to invade Jerusalem. Habakkuk, have faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Habakkuk 2.4. Nahum, Nineveh will be judged. Ezekiel, exile to Babylon. And Daniel, defeat of earthly kingdoms. We're going to take every one of those in turn over the last couple of weeks. Hey, notice that Judah is a blue line. Because all of these kings in Judah come from the line of Judah. That's the messianic line. So, uh, before we get to you, Rehoboam, quick overview. Remember that the kingdom splits after Solomon. Jeroboam is Solomon's servant in charge of his armies. Rehoboam is his son. Rehoboam takes bad advice. Solomon has been really hard on the people of of, of Israel. He builds an entire temple. The temple is amazing, but he uses slave labor basically to do it. And so Rehoboam says, how hard should I go on the people on, on Israel? Well, the old counselors say you should ease off of them. They're tired. But the young friends of Rehoboam says, here's what you should tell them. My father whipped you with whips. I'm going to scourge you with scorpions. It's like Arnold Schwarzenegger, my thigh is as big as your waist kind of thing. So anyway, he says that in God's, but this is God's providence. Remember that Ahijah had told Jeroboam before this, he said, you're going to get 10 of the tribes of Israel. You're going to get 10 of them. So the kingdom is actually taken away from him. Why? Because Rehoboam gets bad advice? No, because Solomon's idolatry. Solomon worships the gods of of all of his wives. Um, What we're going to see is that The line of Judah is preserved throughout Judah, whereas the line, the family line, is not preserved in Israel. Remember how Jehu kills the dynasty of Omri, and Omri is used to kill the line of Zimri or something like that? I mean, there's just all of these murders. The reason God preserves his line here is not because of this the righteousness of these kings. Ezekiel says, Judah's sins are as bad as Israel's sins. They're like two sisters, and both of them are unfaithful sisters. And in fact, the sins of the younger one, Judah, would make the older one blush. That's what Ezekiel is telling us. So God doesn't preserve these kings because of their righteousness. Why does he preserve them? The promise to David because God is steadfast in his covenant to David. That's just got to be central. So the kings are just as bad down here as they are up here. Now there are four kings who do trust God. (laughs) What a relief. There are four of them. So we've got Asa and his son Jehoshaphat, and we've got Hezekiah and Josiah. Those are kind of the only kings that really trust God. Hopefully we're going to get to Hezekiah today. God is going to send many prophets during this time, pronouncing judgment for sin, calling Judah to repentance, 
Um, Jeremiah and Ezekiel are going to be painstaking in their calls for judgment. But um, the Old Testament talks about the, the uh, long-suffering of God, that he, Romans 3, passed over sins formerly committed in his, in his long-suffering. The Jewish phrase for this is the long nose of God. It's, it's, it has to do with him just bearing with the sins of his people. For how long? 300 years of idolatry with my prophets all along the way calling them back to repentance. And then in three deportations, judgment finally comes. All right, let's look at our first king. Everybody say number one. Rehoboam. Remember that there are 19 kings in the south, 19 kings in the north, with the addition of one queen, Athaliah. Open to 1 Kings 12. This is kind of where we orient. Rehoboam, his son, is going to reign for 17 years. And it says immediately, he adopts the abominations around Judah. Remember that God calls his people at Sinai, you're going to be distinct as my people in this land. Do not become like the nations around you. If you marry their women, you'll worship their gods. I'm a holy God. You are to be set apart as holy. But now in this one statement, Rehoboam, it says, makes Judah like the nations around them. So not exactly off on a right foot. Um, Rehoboam's mother was Nama the Ammonite. She was one of the foreign wives of Solomon. And during Solomon's reign, the Ammonite god Milcom was one of the foreign gods that was worshipped. And so... Rehoboam is very happy to introduce the pagan religions that he would have inherited from his mom. And he also sets up cult prostitution and abominations like the nations around them. Look at 1 Kings chapter 14. And Andrew, could I have you read verses 22 through 24? 1 Kings 14, 22 through 24. Very good. All right, so this description sounds a whole lot like the northern kingdom. The idolatry is just like the nations around them. But God is going to preserve the line because of his steadfastness to his covenant with David, not because of the righteousness of kings. Okay? As we study each king, look for God to uphold his covenant with David, even in the midst of the sins of the kingdom. He will always preserve a seed to keep this line of Judah going. Notice when they go into exile, the line kind of blurs here. It fades. And you're wondering, what happened to the, to the messianic line? Is the Messiah still going to come? But remember, in the second deportation, Jehoiachin, who's the second to last king, he gets taken into Babylon. And we hear that Jehoiachin is actually treated well by the king, by King Nebuchadnezzar. He dines at his table and everything. And he's going to have a son, and he's going to have a son, and he's going to have a son. And that son, Zerubbabel, will come back to Jerusalem, and he's going to be governor of Jerusalem while they build the second temple. When you turn to the New Testament and you read the genealogies in Luke 3 and Matthew 1, you read these names. God preserves his line all the way to Jesus, son of Joseph. Um, At the end of Rehoboam's reign, God sends Shishak, the king of Egypt, to invade Judah with thousands of chariots and horsemen. The prophet Shemaiah speaks to Rehoboam, thus says the Lord, you abandoned me, so I have abandoned you to the hand of Shishak. 
in response, Rehoboam humbles himself, turns to the Lord, and the city of Jerusalem is not destroyed at that time, though some treasures of the temple are carried off. Okay? Everybody say, number two. Abijah, Rehoboam's son, continues in sin. He does evil. Everybody say, number three. three. Asa reigns for more than 40 years, and he is the first southern king who does what is good and right in the sight of God. Asa removes the foreign altars and high places. He tears down the pillars, he cuts down the ashram, and he removes the male cult prostitutes and the idols. And he commands Judah to seek God and to keep the law and the commandments that were given to Moses. King Asa's devotion is most apparent when he's attacked by an Ethiopian army. Asa is clearly outnumbered, but he cries out in the middle of battle, O Lord, there is none like you to help between the mighty and the weak. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rely on you, and in your name we have come against this multitude. O Lord, you are God. Let not man prevail against you. And he wins the battle. So remember what we learned um, in David's time. The battle belongs to the Lord. We still go th- get those messages as we're reading all the way through Kings. It's, it's a really regular um, experience. But in the course of all of this, there's still some pagan worship that's happening at some of the high places. Here's what's going on. When the Israelites come into the land of uh, Canaan, it's under the leadership of Joshua. It's called the conquest narratives. God tells them there's going to be high places of worship that are left there by ancient peoples. And he actually condones you can worship me at those high places until a central place of worship is, is instituted. Well, that central place of worship was instituted in Shiloh. And then Shiloh was moved to Jerusalem under King David. So there's the central place of worship. So what should have happened to those high places is destroyed. You no longer have the temptation to worship me at those places. Those ancient high places continue to exist. And God's people just kind of, I'm going to do my own little worship thing over in these corners. And it's, it's not what God had for his people. Uh, everybody say number four. Joe Fat. So Asa and Jehoshaphat, these are a couple of the kings that really do trust God. He removes the high places in the ashram and follows the commandments of God. But he makes one mistake. He has bad judgment. He has bad friends. He allies himself with the king of Israel, who you know from Moby Dick. He allies himself with Ahab. And Ahab is full of terrible ideas. One of Ahab's ideas was, you know that city in Syria? It belongs to us. We should go get it, Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat's like, I don't know if it's the Lord's will for us to go get it. And Ahab's like, okay, we can seek the Lord. That's fine. I'll call 400 prophets of Baal to come and prophesy And so 400 prophets come, and every one of those prophets says, it is the will of the Lord that you go into battle and you take that city back. And uh, Jehoshaphat, in his godly wisdom, says, do you not have one single prophet of the Lord here? I can say what the Lord, again, Yahweh says about this. And he says, well, yeah, there's one, Micaiah. But he never prophesies anything good about me. (laughs) 
Jehoshaphat's like, bring him. And so here comes Micaiah. And Micaiah says, the first thing he says is, you will go up and you will take the city in, bat- in battle. And Ahab goes, haven't I told you to tell me the truth when you prophesy? And so Micaiah says, well, in that case, your people will be stranded like sheep without a shepherd. That's what he says. You're going to go up and abysmally lose. But Ahab says, we're going anyway. And so what Ahab says to Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat loves the Lord, but he's not very bright. <laughs> Ahab tells Jehoshaphat, um, Jehoshaphat, why don't you wear your kingly robes into battle? I'm going to dress up like a soldier, just like a normal soldier. And Jehoshaphat's like, that sounds like a good plan, I guess. So they go into battle, and in God's providence, they're in the heat of battle, and Jehoshaphat calls on the name of the Lord, just like Asa had. O oh Lord, save me. That's about, that's about it. That's like his, his prayer. And in the heat of battle, a stray arrow strikes Ahab right between his armor, and he's left on his chariot to bleed out, and he dies. So with that, Jeroboam knows, or Jehoshaphat knows the battle belongs to the Lord. I'm not putting my hands, my trust in, in any, um, any man. Um, after all this, there's great religious reforms in Judah. Um, Jehoshaphat appoints judges. He reinstitutes the priesthood. He trusts in the Lord. It's, it's great. But um, there's still pagan religion going on. But Jehoshaphat is going to be described, this is Second Chronicles 20, as a king who walked in the way of Asa, his father, and did not turn from it, as opposed to the way of Jeroboam or Rehoboam. Um, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. But the next verse says, the people had not yet set their hearts upon the God of their fathers, and they still worshiped idols. The period of the kings proves that even the best kings fail, every one of them. You see it in every one. But Zechariah, all the way here at the end, even though there's no king sitting on the throne, Zechariah prophesies about a king of righteousness. And he's going to come into his kingdom, lowly and gentle, riding on the foal of a donkey, on a colt. Everybody say number five. five. Jehoram, son of Jehoshaphat, he reigns for seven years. He walked in the way of the kings of Israel as the house of Ahab had done. For the daughter, get this, the daughter of Ahab was his wife. John, you brought up Jezebel. Remember that Jezebel was the wife of Ahab. They have a daughter named Athaliah. So Athaliah is going to marry Jehoram. So you've got all of these influences of idolatry now coming on back to Judah. And we're going to see Athaliah's name actually appears here. After the death of her husband, after the death of their son, she is going to try to wipe out all of her late husband's line. Ooh. But God is going to have his way instead, because that's the story of history. Um, he establishes high places and leads the inhabitants of Jerusalem into whoredom, Second Chronicles says. This is, this is, again, just like Hosea. They describe marital infidelity as the metaphor for covenantal infidelity 
with worship. In judgment, God stirs up the Philistines and the Arabians and they invade Judah and take away all of the possessions in the king's house, as well as Jehoram's sons and wives. The only son left is his youngest, Ahaziah, who will become the next king. Everybody say number six. He's also called Jehoahaz, just to make it confusing. He reigns for a single year. His mother is Athaliah, the daughter of Ahab, king of Israel. He does what is evil in the sight of the Lord as the house of Ahab had done. He's murdered. It's interesting. He's murdered by Jehu when he's in the company of Jehoram. So as, look, there's, there's one point where Jehoram is reigning in the north and a different Jehoram is reigning in the south. And one is going to marry the wife of the, one is going to marry the mother. It's so confusing. It's all mixed up. Um, but he's going to be murdered, and then Athaliah comes on the scene. This is the mother of Ahaziah. She's a Baal worshiper. She reigns for six years. She murders the entire household of her late husband, Ahaziah, but one son escapes. It's this beautiful story about the, the, the priest, the high priest's wife, steals this infant away and keeps him secret for six years, knowing that he's going to be king. And then, so Athaliah has no idea that Joash is even alive. And then they do a coronation ceremony when this boy is just six years, seven years old. And then Athaliah hears something's coming from this distant building and she goes over there and then she learns that, oh my gosh, Joash is alive and he's being crowned and then they kill her. Great story. Great story. Uh, Jehoiada the priest, yes, great. And then that leads us on to everybody say, number seven, seven. Joash. During his reign, the priest Jehoiada makes a covenant between the Lord, the people, and the king that they would um, be the Lord's people. So they eradicate Baal worship. Um, And then the people bring all of their resources to repair the temple of God. They put them all together. Um, the, The capital campaign was called gather, equip, serve, and they just gathered all the resources. Uh, after Jehoiada, the priests... Uh, no, never mind. All right. So there's still idols that are going to be instituted. Um, kind of a sad story about how he actually... So remember, Joash was rescued by the priest's wife. Well, the priest and his wife had a son named Zechariah. Joash when Zechariah calls Joash to account about his idolatry, he kills Zechariah. He kills the son of the woman who saved his life. It's this terrible story. So he becomes a murderer, um, and he's actually going to be murdered for his bloodshed by somebody else. Um, Amaziah, everybody say number eight. This is Joash's son, reigns for 30 years, does what is right in the sight of the Lord, although the high places remain. He murders those who kill his father, but shows restraint in his justice according to God's law, which is great. Um, he strengthens the kingdom and goes into battle against the Edomites, but after defeating the Edomites, he brings the Edomite gods back to Jerusalem to worship. So more idolatry. God judges him by bringing the northern kingdom, uh, the northern king Joash, against Jerusalem. And then we get to Uzziah. Everybody say number nine. Uzziah, also called Amaziah, he reigns for 52 years. And during the course of, um, of Uzziah's reign, he is going to bring 
Israel into its golden period. It's the year of Uzziah's death that Isaiah starts prophesying. So you can read about that in Isaiah chapter 5 and 6. He fortifies his kingdom. Um, it's Judah's golden age. But he fails to remove the cultic high places, so there's still paganism. And then Isaiah is going to come on the scene at the year of his death. And then we get to Jotham. Everybody say, number 10. Follows God, but the high places remain, and it's during his reign that Micah starts prophesying. Jotham orders his ways before the Lord, so the Lord gave him success, but the people still walk in idolatry. So far, we've covered about 200 years of the southern empire. And then we get to Ahaz. Everybody say, number 11. Reigns for 20 years. Um, here's what 2 Kings 16 says. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering. Remember that this is um, what some of the kings do, northern and southern. It's what um, Chemosh and Milcom and many of these pagan gods, if you really wanted to earn their favor, you would burn your, your children. Um, God says explicitly in the law of Moses that he does not want child sacrifice. Think about Abraham. God's obedience to Abraham when God asked for his child was rooted in the fact that if, if God wants me to sacrifice Isaac, it must be because he's going to raise him from the dead. And so he trusts him in that. But he doesn't actually take Isaac's life. Uh, so child sacrifice, abominations like the nations around them. During this time, Judah is attacked by one of the last kings of Israel, Pekah. The Edomites and the Philistines have taken some of Judah's territory. The Lord is humbling Judah during this time of abominations under Ahaz. So you can think Ahab's really bad. Ahaz is also really bad down here. God raises up Isaiah to go visit Ahab, Ahaz. And God tells Ahaz that Pekah and Rezin will not succeed in their attack against Judah. And just as a sign of God's faithfulness to this promise. He says, this is God's word to you. He says, there's going to be a sign. A virgin will give birth. And his name will be, actually, his name will be Emmanuel, God with us. The word virgin can be translated um, the youth. So the, the young woman. So it could be that a virgin didn't actually give birth in the time of Ahaz, but a child was named God with us, Emmanuel. But that is ultimately going to be fulfilled in the first chapters of the Gospels, where a virgin does give birth and the child's name will be God with us. Remember John chapter 1. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. God with us. This is what was lost when God's people are expelled from Eden. We're no longer in the presence of God. God has to reestablish that presence. We are a people that have to be with their Lord. When God calls us into um, the land of Canaan, everything is oriented around um, sacrifice to make atonement, to bring us into the presence of God. When the temple is going to be destroyed in 586, Ezekiel has a vision of the presence of God leaving the temple on a vehicle with wheels spinning in the air. God's presence failing to be with his people, or no longer being his, leaving his people. This is the greatest tragedy of the human story. So that means Jesus' incarnation, 
that God himself has come to be with us in Jesus Christ, that's the purpose that all of this is moving toward. Ultimately, Jesus will come again. And when he does that, that's where sin, tears, death is no more. It's, it's kind of the end of the story. See, I knew that was going to happen. I just knew it. I know. Sorry, it's just... Normally, I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, clean it up, but John Dickinson is here, and I have to treat this room with a lot of respect. <laughs> John is rolling his eyes at you right now, Valerie. Rolling his eyes. Um, okay. I think that's good. Okay, let's talk about Isaiah. Unwilling to trust God. Don't worry about that. Sacrifices, no surprise. Okay. Let's turn over to Isaiah. Um, if there is a prophet that you want to spend some serious time in in the Old Testament... Isaiah is the one to go to. You get a lot of history, uh, and Isaiah is really divided. The first 39 chapters stand alone, and then the, the last 26 chapters, chapter 40 through 66, I think it's like the Romans of the Old Testament. It's just such amazing. I quoted it today, Isaiah 46, about we're bearing our idols, but actually God is the one who bears us, right? And so let's turn to Isaiah chapter 1. And could I have somebody read Isaiah 1, verse 4 for us? Thanks, Valerie. Very good. Holy One of Israel. That's idiomatic Isaiah language, the Holy One of Israel. So, as Valerie just read, God has a complaint against his people. I am the Holy One of Israel. You, as my people, are to reflect that, but you're a people laden with iniquity. It's like you've got, you are, you are corrupted through and through. God's people have rebelled against the Holy One of Israel. And then... Um, what we're going to find is that Isaiah is not exempt from this sin. When he comes into the presence of God in Isaiah chapter 6, if you kind of want to turn that way, he says, I am a man of unclean lips. I cannot be in your presence. And so God has to make atonement for him right there, atone for his sin by pressing a coal against his lips. Remember when Peter is first in the boat with Jesus and Jesus does the miraculous catch of fish? What does Peter say? Depart from me. I'm a sinner. This is, this is our reaction when we come into the presence of God as a worshiping people. We confess his holiness. We rely on his mercy because we're, we're sinners. And then we confess our sin together. Israel is spiritually blind and deaf like the idols that they worship. They've become just like the idols that they worship. They have eyes, but do not see, ears, but do not hear. So Isaiah is constantly reminding these worshipers of idols and who the real Lord is. He says in chapter 40, lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by a number. 
He calls them by name in chapter 44. I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim. When you read the last 20 chapters or so of Isaiah, this comes up so many times. There is no God like me. There is no God like the Holy One of Israel. We're trying to replace him and replicate him. Jesus quotes Isaiah right after he tells the parable of the sower. Why don't the people understand parables? Isaiah says, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. God's word is coming at them, but they don't have the faith to hear it. And Jesus tells the parable of the sower, and he says, this is the purpose of parables. Unless you're hearing with faith and really turning to the living God, none of this stuff is is sticking. Our world is also blinded by idolatry. Uh, Tim Keller, a former pastor of a church in New York called Redeemer, this is how he defines an idol. An idol is a good thing that's become an ultimate thing. An idol is a good thing that's become an ultimate thing. Work, a good thing. But when it becomes our ultimate thing, uh, relationships with others. But when we make it our heart and soul, any of this, our, you know, our intelligence, our education, our, um, our livelihood, our, our, our you know, physical health, when it becomes everything, that's actually when God has to dismantle it. Like that, sure, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. What I've been talking, um, Micah, the new youth director, and I have been talking, we've been reading this great book, and it's helping us understand something that when the world, um, we're people who look for meaning. And when we don't have that meaning at the center of our lives, it's actually, it causes so much anxiety that it's better to just distract our way out of it. And what Kate was just holding in her hand, that's the perfect tool for distraction. It's so perfect. And so these idols that really are not giving us the significance that we want. For instance, if you've ever been on a career path where you're like, once I get that raise, things are gonna be good. Or once I get that job, then people are gonna think so well about me. But then you get there and it doesn't give you the significance that you want at all. Well, that gives you a ton of anxiety. So you better distract out of it. And phones are just a great way to do that. Great way to do it. Um, this is a, I was just quoting Tim Keller. Great book up on the shelf, Every Good Endeavor. Uh, it has to do with the, the theology of work. And he really goes at work as being, this has become our cultural idol. And it needs to be dismantled. If you want one of those books, just grab one before you go. Um, okay, what's the hope for our, our idolatry? In Luke chapter 4, Jesus is preaching in the synagogue. And he gets up and he announces, quoting Isaiah, that God's spirit is upon him and that he has been sent to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. Jesus will be the one to actually provide insight. He says then, as he rolls it up, puts the scroll back, He sits down and he says, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is the one to help us with our idols. And so I suggest that we take the lessons that we've been learning from kings like Jehoshaphat and Isaiah, call upon upon the Lord in the midst of battle with the fact that Jesus is the one who saves us from our idols. 
when we feel like we're absolutely take, been taken in by a cultural idol, turn to Jesus and ask for help. Um, here's what he says. Worship the living God. I probably, where am I? Oh, yeah. Um, let's end on this, this idea. As you read Isaiah, you get a lot of language about the servant of the Lord. And the servant of the Lord, as you're reading Isaiah, it sounds like Israel. You know, I've, I've loved you. I've called you to be my people. I've caused you to be my son. Well, that sounds like Israel, the nation of Israel. And then in some verses, it says, but you're not doing at all what I've sent you to do. You're living like the nations around you. And then you hear about a servant who is perfectly righteous. And that servant is the one who brings his spirit to the peoples. And you're going, wait a second. I thought Israel didn't fulfill that. It's almost like he's talking about someone else. And then this servant turns out to be one who, for the iniquity of the people, suffers. By his stripes, we are healed. By his wounds, we are made well. And then you begin to ask the question, is this the same servant? It seems like a second one. What we see in Jesus, especially in his death, his suffering and death, is that the Messiah who was to come, the blue crowned Messiah who is to reign forever, is the same person as the servant who will suffer for sin. The Jews did not get that. They didn't get it. The disciples didn't get it. Because remember, when Jesus says, now that you know I'm the Son of God, we're going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to suffer and die at the hands of the chief priests and the elders. And Peter says, no, 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 you're the Messiah. But Peter doesn't know he's the Messiah and the suffering servant. So God is going to atone for sin and introduce his Messiah, his King, at the same time in the same person in Jesus. Now, once that comes to once the disciples get that, it's after the ascension of Christ, the Holy Spirit comes, and that's what the letters of Paul really help us to understand. Oh, that's what Paul is preaching in the synagogues. This suffering servant, this Messiah, they're, they're the same person. And in the Old Testament, we didn't get the fullness of that revelation. So, next week, we are going to peer into Micah and keep going a little bit, but let me just ask, let's do... Yes, yes, we'll, we'll look at that. Hey, just a little a review. True or false? While the northern kings and their dynasties were sometimes eliminated, that should say eliminated, sorry, because of their unrighteousness, not illuminated, eliminated because of their righteousness, unrighteousness, the southern kings were preserved because they were righteous. True or false? False. Why were they preserved? Great, the covenant with David, the Davidic covenant. What two southern prophets lived during the fall of Samaria? I'll give you a hint. One I just talked about. Yeah, and then our second one is going to be Micah. Uh, what three southern kings showed their trust in the Lord? We've only heard about two of them. Asa and Jehoshaphat. Good, and we're going to hear about a third and actually then a fourth next week. Hezekiah and Jos Josiah. All right. Uh, with that, I'm going to see you in two weeks. If you want to review any of this stuff, it's going to be on the podcast. Allow me to pray. Father, we do call upon the name of the Lord. We, we pray 
that you would bring us to a point in our faith where our muscles of repentance and turning to you and calling on your, on your name is just instantaneous when we feel the pressures of temptation and anxiety pressing in on us that we, because we've entertained that an idol, something in our culture might actually satisfy us. Help us to turn back to you and call on your name. And Lord, we thank you for the marvelous person of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our King, who reigns now and forever. And we pray these things in his name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Thanks, friends. See you in a couple of weeks.